Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. Love, love, love this company. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode. But now, on with the show. Uh, negative real rates over the next two, three decades is the only politically palatable solution to the yep. uh, debt to GDP issues that we're faced with. I simply cannot imagine uh, a scenario where a politician in a democracy will allow any other scenario to unfold because then you will be thrown out of office immediately. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I'm joined by the one and only Andreas Steno Larsen. Andres, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Michael. Hey, man. Uh, first of all, I just want to say to kick things off, super excited that you are back. Uh, already in the last couple of weeks, I've been enjoying <laughs> seeing your tweets, getting your thoughts, uh, and I'm just super excited to have you back in the community here, putting out content, and excited to get your thoughts on a lot of stuff today. It, uh, it's good to be back. Uh, I've missed it, <laughs> to be very uh, honest. <laughs> you put out this great uh, thread back on January 4th, uh, where you kind of touched on your whole macro outlook for 2022. You talked a little bit about kind of your thoughts on COVID and sort of the waning effects there. Uh, you mm -hmm. talked about your thoughts on inflation, uh, the yield curve, and kind of this idea of the, the link between the credit impulse, the slowing credit impulse, and going long duration. All right, so anywhere you want to start, kind of just walk us through the 10,000-foot view. You know, what should we be expecting in 2022? I think we should expect a lot of downside uh, surprises, first of all, to the inflation mm -hmm. outlook, but also to the nominal mm -hmm. growth outlook. Um, and the reason is that we are approaching the end of the pandemic. Uh, that sounds counterintuitive at the surface, but I actually think a lot of the trends that we saw throughout 2020 and 2021 were fueled by the pandemic. Um, and if the experts are right that the Omicron variant of the uh, COVID-19 virus is as mild as it is, then I think we should expect the pandemic to be very close to a, uh, a peak in terms of the economic impact. Uh, and therefore, I also expect uh, the trends that we've seen throughout the last couple of years to reverse uh, very, very swiftly through this year. Uh, and first of all, that means that supply chains will be less disrupted this year. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we see early signs of it already. Uh, we see freight rates going down in parts of the world. That's an early but good um, signal of that. Uh, and secondly, I also think that you should expect people to return to the labor force. And I think this is a massive game changer in, in, in terms of the labor market environment that we've seen over the past couple of years, since the wage growth that we see right now has been fueled by the lack of labor market mobility that we've seen through the pandemic. So downside surprises to uh, inflation, first of all, but also nominal growth. And that will be a surprise to everyone. Walk me through why you see people actually returning to the labor force. Well, if, if we approach the end of the pandemic, uh, then we should also expect COVID policies to become less strict. Uh, I also mm. think we see the early signs of that across the board already now. Uh, we see it in the UK, we see it in parts of Northern Europe. Um, and that's, uh, to me, a good sign for the labor market mobility that we've seen a lack of over the past 18 months. Uh, it's very clear when you ask regular people uh, whether they want to move uh, across borders, for example, to take a job, that uh, it was uh, nothing that, um, that people wanted to do uh, throughout the pandemic. So if this whole COVID spread dissipates over the next couple of quarters, then I'm actually pretty sure that we will get some of the labor market flexibility back, uh, which essentially means that the labor force will also increase in size again. 
what, what a lot of attention is being paid to right now is just what is the Fed doing, right? And there's a lot of uh, attention being paid to potential rate hikes, uh, right, in 2022 and quantitative tightening. And I want to break down your thoughts on both of those things. Let's start with the rate hikes. So you were really early, actually, in calling yeah. um, rate hikes, right, in 2022. I think you said it like six months ago, and all these people were like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. And now it's become a very consensus view extremely quickly. So walk us through what gave you the confidence back then to sort of predict these rate hikes and just what are your thoughts? Because now we're pricing in like a 100% possibility of four or probability of four and a 50% probability of 50 bips on the first one in March. So yeah, walk us through what your thoughts are here. Uh, To me, inflation is one of the easiest variables to predict since it lacks Mm. the economic cycle by at least four to five quarters. Uh, So the inflation that we see right now is a result of uh, economic developments maybe a year ago or so. Uh, So my models predicted a Mm. material spike in core inflation as a result of a very weak labor force, uh, but also as a result of uh, the supply chain disruptions that we saw uh, emerging throughout the early stages of the pandemic. Uh, So actually, if you asked Um, corporates already a year ago, they started telling us that they planned on hiking prices. Um, But no one, no one took notice of it. um, Since everybody just expected it to be some very short term effects driven by by the pandemic. And maybe those people will actually be proven right this year. But for some reason, it seems like everybody now um, feels comfortable saying that inflation will stick around for longer. Um, and now that uh, inflation has been um, way, way above target for at least four quarters in a row. Um, that's very interesting to me because it also means that it has become a consensus view to expect the Federal Reserve to tighten up quite materially. Uh, when I started saying that the Federal Reserve um, uh, would hike interest rates this year, uh, maybe nine months ago, actually, then people called me all sorts of weird things because no one believed in it, right? Uh, I, I was told that the Fed could never do anything. Um, and now we are two months away from the first rate hike. Uh, and now people are even debating whether they should hike interest rates by 50 basis points in March. Uh, I have to admit that I lack the imaginations to, uh, to, to see a 50 point basis point hike, maybe because I'm too young, I don't know. Um, but um, the point here is that when a view is already a consensus view, then we obviously need a new trigger uh, to price in even more interest rate hikes than what we already see priced in. Uh, And I struggle to see that trigger since inflation and nominal growth is from a momentum perspective um, on the way down now. What's unclear to me, right, is to what degree is this priced in? Because, you know, the, the, the kind of narrative that's emerging right now is the Fed is going to, you know, tighten things up, uh, you know, no fiscal or monetary spigots anymore it means really bad for risk assets, long duration assets in general. Uh, but my question is, isn't that already priced in? It's not some secret anymore that the Fed is going to be doing this. It wasn't like six months ago when you were calling this, this has become a super consensus view. So when folks are looking mm. out at the market, I mean, to what degree is this already priced in versus how much downside is there still to come? I think the dark horse now is the size of the potential quantitative tightening from the Federal Reserve, uh, because uh, as you also mentioned, we already have more than four rate hikes priced in for this year. Uh, I think that's more than enough. Uh, But we don't know the exact size of the balance sheet drawdown that the Fed plans on doing. 
Um, and that's the dark house now, uh, because we, um, if we look back just four or five years, uh, when the Federal Reserve um, enrolled in quantitative tightening for the first time ever, uh, it ultimately ended up in uh, quite a mayhem in risk assets, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And I, I understand that people start debating it again now, uh, given the end game of the quantitative tightening process um, in uh, 1718. Uh, so that's the dark horse. We simply need to figure out how aggressive the Federal Reserve um, would want to be on, on the tightening process from a balance sheet perspective. I think that's more important than rate hikes. You have this great understanding of the mechanics uh, behind quantitative tightening and what the impacts are on different markets. And specifically, I've heard you talk about the connection between quantitative tightening and the steepness of the yield curve. So you could just kind of walk us through mechanically what's happening and what you see the most important implications of QT being. Uh, quantitative tightening is basically the opposite of uh, QE, quantitative right. easing. Uh, so uh, what the Fed plans on doing uh, is that they want to minimize the amount of assets that they hold on the balance sheet. Um, and they will likely uh, do that in a very structured way where they allow uh, the balance sheet to shrink uh, at a certain pace every month. Um, the mechanics uh, are also fairly uh, structural, I would say, since what happens is that uh, when you um, allow the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve to shrink in size, the private sector will basically have to absorb that amount of assets um, that mm. will be released from the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve. In this case, the private sector will have to absorb um, uh, the amount of T-bonds that uh, will be uh, released from the Federal Reserve balance sheet per month. Uh, which in this case means that the uh, private market will have to absorb the duration of these bonds that will be um, uh, released to the market again. Uh, and that's interesting given that uh, the private sector balance sheets right now are very skewed towards zero duration assets, uh, the dollar reserves that the Federal Reserve uh, buys um, the uh, bonds with. Uh, and, and therefore, the market will obviously have to absorb this uh, newly added duration uh, that we um, will see over the coming three, four, five, six quarters. Um, I think intuitively that should lead to a spike in long bond yields because the market will simply have to absorb longer bonds again. Uh, but empirically, the opposite has happened. Um, and I think it has to do with the um, fact that when you uh, enact in quantitative tightening, uh, you also ask private risk takers to take less risks uh, mechanically. Uh, the reason being that uh, when you buy up a portion of the most safe part of the risk curve during a process of QE, uh, you also uh, slowly but surely tell private risk takers to move further out the risk curve. Um, mm. So they need duration, they need yield. Uh, a pension fund needs, needs, simply needs duration and needs right. yield. And therefore they will have to, to buy a credit bond, for example, um, uh, when they uh, sell their uh, treasury to the Federal Reserve. Uh, so when you ask that same pension fund to buy the treasury again, uh, you obviously leave uh, room for, for example, credit bonds, but also equities to perform less, uh, less good. Um, and, and therefore, uh, you tend to get a scenario where uh, risk assets perform uh, uh, less good than in a QE environment. Um, and therefore, you also get the spillovers to, um, to the activity uh, level in, in society in general. Uh, so if you get credit spreads widening, if you get multiples contracting in equity space, then you usually also get lower long bond yields as a result of it due to the uh, slowing economic activity.
I've got a follow-up question for you here. I know in another interview you did with um, Alfonso, uh, you, you made the connection in between the cost of capital for companies as well. So basically, is mm. the idea that with the private sector absorbing kind of longer duration, higher yield debt, then that higher yield that they're forced to bear, that translates into the higher whack, basically, for companies, and then that leads to less productive activity happening? Yeah. I think that is exactly what we should uh, look for over the next year mm. or two, um, that the cost of capital for, for most companies will uh, will rise. Uh, and that usually leads to less activity with the time lag, uh, since uh, most investment cases become less benign. Um, yeah. and, that, and that's essentially also what we saw in 2017-18 uh, with the time lag. Tell me if I'm right here, because I feel like that might not actually be super bearish for markets. Like if you really subscribe to the idea that, you know, when you lower interest rates to an artificially low level, you encourage non-productive risk taking, right? This is kind of the Ben Hunt idea of financial risk taking versus actually productive risk taking. So, you know, even when you look at the last couple of months when the market has started to either become wary of or start to price in QT, you actually have seen a shift, right? So ARK, I saw you tweet about that, right? ARK <laughs> is getting absolutely pummeled, man. And honestly, if yeah. you look too at, um, you know, like the COVID era, pandemic era darlings, right? Like Zoom has basically done a full round trip, uh, right? From where it was in April or May of 2020. Uh, Peloton has done the same thing. Some of the other frothier stocks like Snowflake is taking a beating. Hmm. Um, uh, I'm one is escaping uh, lemonade, which is another run. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. it was like frothy tech stocks, right? But the indices are actually holding up pretty well. So we could actually it could actually be a pretty healthy reshuffling of the market, right? If like some amount of time value of money comes back into play. What do you think? Yeah, I tend to think uh, so as well. Uh, and I mean, um, it makes perfect sense from a fundamental perspective that uh, the stocks that you mentioned took a beating into this QT message. Mm -hmm. uh, since they rely on easy funding uh, and they will have less as access to easy funding uh, due to the QT process that uh, is about to unfold. Um, so I, I think it makes sense uh, from a fundamental perspective that you see this uh, development in, uh, in tech stocks, for example. But on an index level, uh, you still have five or six uh, of the big names producing strong numbers. Um, so that's another thing worth looking into this year, that uh, it may make sense to place your money um, in companies with a very, very strong market position. Mm. Uh, because I essentially think that the environment that we are uh, approaching uh, will be very benign for companies with a strong uh, market leader position, yeah. since they will be able to pass on price increases to customers without any issues, uh, while it will be a bigger struggle for, um, for companies with a less strong position in markets. So basically look for de facto monopolies. Uh, mm. that, that's, that, that would be my take for this year in, in the equity space. Mm. So, Andres, I'm, I'm surprised. Are you saying that fundamentals might at some point actually start to matter again? Am I understanding that <laughs> <Yeah>. correctly? <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, I've got one more question for you before moving on. Uh, so, you know, this new, like the, the amount of treasuries that are about to come online, like the 10-year and stuff, why does it have to be the private sector that has to absorb that as opposed to potentially foreign buyers of U.S. 10 years? And I don't think it necessarily has to be the uh, domestic private sector. It could also yeah. be the foreign private sector. Foreign private sector. Uh, so uh, if you if you look at the um, uh, the yield pickup that you receive in ten year uh, bonds in the U.S. now, for example, hedged back to Japanese yen or hedged back to uh, to euros, then it's uh, at levels that we haven't seen since two thousand eighteen. So mm. it's starting to to look very very um, benign to, to to buy these bonds from a uh, European or Japanese perspective. So uh, I could easily imagine uh, foreign players also tapping into this market. Mm. I want to get your thoughts on uh, 
two kind of related topics, right, which is what I've heard you describe as the credit impulse um, and yeah. the steepness of the yield curve in general. So can you explain how those two ideas are related to you um, and, and how those two ideas are kind of informing your view of what's going to happen in 2022? When, when I say the credit impulse, uh, what I basically mean is the amount of credit that's created by commercial banks and uh -huh. the public sector. Um, so, uh, I mean, we've had this debate ongoing since 2008, whether the Federal Reserve prints money or not. Uh, I am probably in the camp uh, that uh, says that it's not really money that they print. Um, it's rather a, um, a reserve system being kept within banks. Uh, so it cannot leave the intrabank system, the money that the Federal Reserve prints. Uh, but the credit uh, amount of credit in the uh, society is the actual true amount of money, uh, as I see it, uh, since that is uh, a dollar that you can actually use to purchase something. You cannot use the, the dollar that the Federal Reserve prints for JP Morgan to use and uh, to buy anything, but you can use a loan to buy something. So th that's what I uh, spent the most time looking at, actual loans to corporates and regular people. Right. Uh, and if you look at the credit creation or the lending to regular people, it absolutely propelled to the upside uh, throughout 2020. Uh, when the first lockdowns hit in uh, March, April 2020, we had the biggest spike ever in credit creation. Uh, so I essentially think that every corporate uh, started utilizing idle um, facilities at banks. Uh, so they had a facility, but they didn't utilize it ahead of it. Uh, and then they started utilizing that loan facility. Uh, that, that was one thing. And then the second thing was that the public sector started, started bailouting right about every uh, person or corporate uh, around yeah. the globe, right? Uh, also with credit. Um, and uh, those credit facilities, they were uh, actually uh, a part of the real economy. Uh, so that also meant that uh, regular people had a truckload of dollars to spend. Uh, and I also think that was what saved us uh, initially uh, throughout the COVID crisis, that uh, this credit creation was as uh, amazing as it was. Uh, but right now we see the exact opposite effect. Um, so corporates are paying back these lend, uh, loan facilities. Um, regular people are not uh, lending as much as they were throughout 2020 and early stages of 2021. And the public sector deficit is on its way down. Uh, so basically on every uh, potential front, we have a shrinking creation of credit. Uh, and to me, that's the worst possible signal for nominal growth that you can get. Uh, when mm. credit growth is slowing on all parameters, uh, then you need to look for downside surprises to growth after a while. That's really interesting. All right, I want to get your view on uh, basically how you how to play this uh, essentially, because I know you've been recommending kind of long duration assets and you said maybe it's a little bit too early. Yeah. But uh, the one thing I'm, I guess, still a little bit confused about is if we are, and I get the quantitative citing, it's still the question mark, like how serious are central banks really. But if we do have an era of quantitative tightening, it's essentially the reverse of QE, then actually I would kind of think that that would be bearish for risk assets, long duration assets. But I know that you actually are kind of recommending that uh, for 2022. Can you, can you just kind of walk me through like, what am I missing there? What's the discrepancy that I'm not understanding? Uh, if, if you look at a long bond yield, uh, uh -huh. I basically think that uh, you have two components uh, below the surface of that bond yield. Uh -huh. uh, one being inflation expectations, 
and the second being uh, long-term growth expectations. Mm. Uh, and there is a tendency for long-term inflation and growth ex expectations to correlate um, extremely well with spot developments in inflation and growth. Um, mm. So uh, market participants are not wiser than the latest data point. That's what I'm saying. Um, so if, if you look at inflation expectations, they are also very highly correlated to what's going on with inflation right now. Mm. Uh, and they are very highly correlated to commodity markets, for example. Uh, so if I'm right that this whole process of quantitative tightening will lead to a slowdown in nominal growth uh, due to the uh, increased cost of capital that will um, uh, show up as a repercussion of this process, then I would also envisage that inflation expectations and growth expectations, also long term, will start dropping. Uh, mm. And that's essentially what we've seen every time the Fed uh, has uh, started um, uh, tightening the balance sheet that uh, inflation expectations have um, have become less uh, less material uh, very very quickly after the, such a process uh, was launched uh, and I, I expect the same to happen this time around if you see the development right now then there is a big uh, gap between the current development in the oil price and the development in long-term inflation expectations, which I find quite puzzling, uh, given that we usually have a very high correlation. But to me, that's a result of uh, the inflation market fearing what's going to happen with uh, the Fed balance sheet. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. I talk to a lot of fast-growing crypto-native funds, crypto banks, exchanges, and the like, and they all tell me they have the same two problems. One, their treasury management setup sucks. They've got analysts wasting time and money on manual transactions. Two, they are not happy with their current security setup. They're sharing passwords, they're sending test transactions, and they're worried that their funds might be at risk. Fireblocks is a platform that solves all of that for you. They're a one-stop shop portal, which automatically plugs into exchanges, trading venues, etc. They source deep liquidity and solve everything from day-to-day -day crypto transactions all the way down to complex DeFi strategy. And the best thing about Fireblocks is that they offer scalable solutions with industry-leading technology. Doesn't matter if you're a two-person crypto fund or a 2,000-person crypto exchange, these guys have you covered. And the last thing that I'll say about this company is that I have known them for years. They are a high-integrity team. They ship product like no other. I would trust them with my own funds. So, Click the link at the bottom of this page and tell them that I sent you. Very, very important that you click the link at the bottom here. Otherwise, they're not going to know that I sent you. And then how am I going to get credit? So help a brother out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Tell them I sent you. So I've seen you tweet a little bit, heard you talk a little bit about kind of the connection in between uh, commodity prices, specifically oil and inflation. Can you just walk us through how you see those two ideas of being like what the connection is between those two things and why, like, I don't know, let's just brainstorm a little bit or, or speculate um, yeah. on why uh, that relationship is breaking down. Well, well first of all, uh, if you look at it historically, um, there is a very strong correlation between, for example, 10-year inflation expectations and the spot development in the oil price. Mm. Uh, it makes no sense at all to me that you have this relationship since uh, the oil price today doesn't matter for inflation in 10 years. Uh, but still you have that uh, very strong correlation. So usually when the oil price is up, you also expect uh, inflation to go up in 10 years. Um, and right now we don't see that pattern. Um, 
probably as a result of the QT process being pondered. Uh, so even with the oil price rallying in recent weeks, we haven't seen a pickup in long-term inflation expectations. And I find that breakdown of the correlation quite intriguing, um, since it could be an early signal that uh, we may be in for a, um, a bumpy ride in, uh, in commodities as well. Uh, I also noted how, um, for example, the oil curve is extremely uh, um, sort of yeah exactly backwarded uh, so it means that the spot price is way above the um, uh, the futures curve right uh, and to me that's usually a signal that we are approaching some sort of peak um, at least I would be on the watch for that uh, even with most analysts calling for plus one hundred dollar uh, barrel uh, oil prices so basically you're saying that CPI might actually follow that kind of backwardation that we're seeing in the oils curve or the oil curve? Yeah, that makes sense to me. Uh, and remember that inflation is measured on a running basis versus the year prior. Uh, mm. So when we approach the second half of next year, it will be very, very tricky to beat uh, the nominal levels that we saw in most prices. Uh, during, for example, the fourth quarter of 2021. Uh, remember that also natural gas prices were extremely elevated before Christmas. Uh, they've come down quite a bit uh, after New Year's, uh, but a lot of prices were temporarily elevated throughout the second half of 2021. And when you measure the uh, inflation in energy against those prices uh, throughout the second half of this year, uh, it will be very, very tricky to beat those prices. And um, well, by definition, inflation will come down. Uh, so the way we measure inflation is per definition transitory. Uh, we had that debate throughout last year, whether inflation was permanent or, or not. Uh, and I think the way we measure inflation, it's, it's almost um, uh, nature given that it will come back towards zero. Uh, gravity simply pulls. You know, one of the great ironies of that whole transitory debate in general was that every word out of Powell's mouth was getting mocked and derided. He's an idiot, yada, yada, <laughs> until he said that, OK, we're going to retire the term transitory. And then suddenly he was a genius. So yeah. <laughs> and maybe I, I actually think that was the exact point where I started turning negative on inflation <laughs> when he said that. Uh, so maybe I just use uh, the J-man as a contrarian indicator. Uh, could be. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All, all we needed was him on the cover of a magazine, and then it would have been like absolutely uh, etched in concrete. Um, I, I want to get your thoughts, um, Andres, in terms of how you see monetary and fiscal policy being enacted in the West uh, versus some of the countries yeah. like uh, China and Russia. So, you know, it's, it's interesting because at the same time that the Fed is very publicly and loudly signaling about, uh, you know, quantitative tightening and raising rates, uh, Xi Jinping actually just came out and said, hey, we don't think this is such a good idea. And actually, China is in the yeah. policy of kind of uh, a very different position. And same thing with Russia. Can you walk us through why you view such a discrepancy in terms of how uh, different nations are, are handling things right now? I think we've seen the uh, business cycle in China and the uh, United States of America being out of sync for quite a while, mm. uh, probably as the crisis, um, the COVID crisis uh, hit the two economies with uh, with the time lag, right? It started uh, in China, but moved to um, the US after a time lag. Uh, that could be one reason why they are so out of sync. But the other reason is that uh, China um, has an issue when it comes to the real estate sector. Um, mm. So they basically deliberately decided to take down um, Evergrande, in my view, to send a very firm signal 
to the most leveraged parts of the real estate sector in China that they didn't want them to continue to just grow with credit um, year after year after year. Uh, but I think now that they face the repercussions of that decision taken in September 2020. Uh, so they simply need to get credit growth back in China now. Otherwise, you will pull the rock from under the real estate market in China. Uh, and if Xi Jinping is interested in staying in power, uh, he obviously is, then he needs um, um, yep. the real estate sector to stabilize now. Uh, he sent a very firm signal to Evergrande. Uh, that was what he was after. But now he needs credit growth back. Uh, and uh, obviously, it's not good news for him if the rest of the world uh, tries to tighten the credit cycle uh, while China is doing the opposite. Uh, so I think that's the main reason why China is so out of sync uh, with mm. the rest of the world right now. You know, the Chinese real estate sector is, is fascinating to me. I, uh, you know, one of the central themes of this show is talking about just the crumbling of institutions, fourth turning uh, and inequality. Uh, and I tend to focus that on the U.S. because this is the country that I know the most. And one of the central things that we, we focus on a lot is just um, how affordable housing is, right? Because that's kind of the first financial step for young people to unlock their uh, their future. And, you know, I was kind of looking at this, you know, median income to average home price, and it's like six to one or so 10 to one in New York or something like that. And I was like, this is so expensive, it's unaffordable. Then you go look at what that ratio is in Shanghai, and it's like 40, <laughs> like 40 to one. Yeah, yeah. It's nuts. I couldn't believe it when yeah. I was looking at it. It's crazy. I mean, how much do you think that cracking down on the real estate sector in general and just trying to get prices lower is actually, you know, a centrally planned economy trying to make housing and land more affordable to the next generation, whereas here, that just doesn't seem to be a priority as much here being in the United States. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I think the old rule of thumb is that uh, a, a price to um, to income ratio of seven is bubble territory. <laughs> and uh, then you look at Shanghai and it's 40. Um, so obviously, that's the reason why uh, a lot of Western analysts have been calling uh, for a uh, a bubble uh, to burst in in Chinese real estate for ages, maybe even a decade now. Uh, the issue is that China is not a Western economy; it's not a Western democracy, uh, and therefore they can basically live with higher prices uh, since they can force people. Um, and I think that's a, a huge difference. Um, and secondly, uh, I mean, it's it's kind of a thing across Asia that you spend more of your income on on housing. Um, probably that's a cultural thing as well. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but but obviously, if he wants to stay in power long term, then he needs affordable housing, um, uh, which is probably also why he decided to take uh, uh, take on Evergrande as he did uh, in 2021, Xi Jinping. You know, China is just a fascinating topic these days because I, I'm always kind of drawn to where there are sharp divergences in opinion uh, and people feel have high emotional opinions, I guess, in one way or the other. I think that's, you know, crypto is very interesting in that regard. Yeah. Uh, I would say Tesla is very interesting in that regard. Uh, and China is very interesting in that regard because you've got really, really intelligent people kind of lining up on both sides of of the debate. Uh, you know, you've got one group saying there's an unbelievable bubble in real estate. It's kind of the sham economy. It's, it's all, it's all going to collapse and it's going to end in tears. And then you've got this other group, which just kind of falls into the, the, the Thucydides trap, uh, you know, school of thought. And they say, Hey, China is actually the rising power and the U S is the waning power. Uh, we got to be careful. I, I'm also conscious of the fact that most of the information that I get China is filtered through the Western lens. So it's probably a big flag mm -hmm. to me that, uh, it's not 
I'm missing something pretty big because uh, I'm getting it from a bunch of white guys. Being cognizant of the fact that we are two white guys, I still love your opinion <laughs> on where you kind of fall in this great debate about China in general. Like, what are your, what are your thoughts there? Well, I think if I should bet on either China or the US with like a 30-year horizon, I would bet on China without uh, a doubt. Um, and the reason being that if you look at trade data, for example, uh, the development that we've seen over the past few decades is just amazing when it comes to uh, Chinese trade patterns with the rest of the world. Uh, if, if you look at um, who's the biggest trade partner for uh, right about every European country, that's China now. It's not the US any longer. And that will eventually over time also spill over to a bigger geopolitical power for China. Because mm. the, uh, those you trade with, it's also those you um, cooperate with to a large extent, since it, it's basically um, a necessity for you to do. If, if uh, your biggest trade partner wants you to do something, you usually cave into their demands. And we can already see the very first signals of uh, European countries uh, starting to move towards China uh, mentally, I would say, also politically. Uh, as a consequence of China being the biggest trade partner for most European countries. Uh, so the US is stuck in a big mess if they still want to be the sole geopolitical power of the world. Uh, they simply need to trade more with uh, their counterparts. Otherwise, they will be um, left behind by China at some point over the next couple of decades. This is a slow process, but uh, slowly but surely we're getting there. You know, being the issuer of the reserve currency is an enormous position of privilege. It gives you norm enormous political sway and power. And it kind of is that age-old debate of what really underlies being the issuer of the reserve currency. Is it being the dominant trade partner? Is it the economy that underlies it? Or is it the largest military, which the U.S. still has? So I'd be curious to just, you know, and usually those things are related, but I'd be curious to get your thoughts on just how important you see being the issuer of the reserve currency in this power struggle. It, it is... Uh, obviously very, very important. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think the reason why we have the dollar as the reserve currency of the world still is that most of world trade is conducted in dollars. Um, mm -hmm. So that's the, basically the key reason why a central bank portfolio manager would want to hold dollars in the reserve portfolio. Mm -hmm. um, what you want in a reserve currency is that you can actually use it to defend your own currency. If, um, and, and for that purpose, uh, trade in that currency is basically needed. Uh, secondly, you want a big and liquid bond market underlying that currency because you need to invest in something with that currency as long as you hold it in the reserve. And then thirdly, obviously, um, you also need to back it up with boots on the ground if shit hits the fan, right? Um, mm. And I still think that the US holds an, <laughs> an advantage when it comes to number three, but they are losing ground on number one and two. Um, the Chinese bond market is getting bigger and more liquid um, and uh, the Chinese uh, will slowly but surely gain an advantage on the trade front. I mean, it's not, an, uh, an, uh, it's not necessarily a given that uh, you trade commodities in, dollar, mm. um, in dollars uh, if China is the biggest trade partner for, for most parts of the world, why wouldn't it make more sense to trade oil in yuan at some point. Uh, at least that's that's a clear risk for the US. Uh, so on parameter one and two, the US is losing ground, but they still have uh, the upper hand on parameter three, boots on the ground. 
Ray Dalio has been putting out a lot of work on this, right? And he, he has different language, but in my opinion, he's kind of saying the same thing. It, basically, you have these 80-year cycles. He describes it in financial terms. He's got short-term, long-term debt cycle, productive growth, right? And then there's this big deleveraging and a reset. Neil Howe kind of approaches it from a sociopolitical perspective and says, there are different generations. The first generation build the institution, then gradually it's kind of forgotten about I'm drastically oversimplifying, and then the institutions collapse and then they reform. To me, you know, I see two very smart people with different frameworks on the world, but they're kind of saying the same thing. So my last question to you is, you know, when I, when I look around uh, to the world today, I do see a lot of collapsing trust as being a central mega theme to a lot of what we're talking about, right? If whether that's yeah. mistrust in the financial system from the great financial crash, crash right? Uh, a huge distrust in media in general, I think pretty well yes. deserved, uh, as I think you might yes. agree. And education is the next big one that I think is about to be a big trend, at least in the US. So I kind of see this disintegration of trust in institutions. And you know, my last question before we move back to markets and, and how you see things playing out in the longer term is, do you agree with that overall framework? And if so, what are the most important consequences of that? Uh, I think there is a clear lack of trust in the system throughout the West. Uh, and that lack of trust has moved with lightning speed throughout the COVID-19 crisis, uh, mm. in my view. Uh, it's really, really sad to watch, basically. Um, and I, I mean, ultimately, uh, the risk is that the uh, fiat system as we know it, uh, when we're talking about the financial repercussions of this, uh, will face uh, increasing uh, obstacles as a consequence of the lack of trust in the uh, monetary authorities, but also in uh, authorities in general. Uh, so that's the clearest financial repercussion I can think of that uh, we might get a challenge uh, before the two of us are gone, Michael, uh, of, of the uh, fiat monetary system. Yeah. Um, at least that's, I could easily imagine that. Um, what comes after is a big dark horse. Um, I guess some people would claim that uh, it would be um, optimal with some sort of crypto-based peg afterwards. Mm -hmm. I'm not so sure that I put a high probability on that, uh, but at least I put a high probability of, uh, of the fiat system being challenged to an even larger degree over our living time. I got a two-part question for you. One, do you see us entering a regime of sustained inflation, right? Secular inflation, where maybe it's not 7% each year, but maybe something like 3 to 5%. And if so, if you do see sustained inflation, where do you see rates in that environment? Uh, for, first of all, I think uh, there is a dist uh, we need to distinguish between the short term and the medium term in terms of inflation, mm -hmm. because I actually think that we've seen a level shift uh, compared to the tens uh, when it comes to inflation. Uh, and I think there are a load uh, of reasons why. Uh, but first of all, uh, overall mobility and flexibility uh, in labor markets will suffer as a consequence of the COVID-19 crisis. And it will take quite a while to fully repair that uh, if we ever manage to. Uh, so um, it's very clear when you ask people now that uh, everything near to them uh, has become more valuable through this crisis as a consequence of border closures and, and stuff like that. Uh, so I guess the whole globalization trend uh, will, will, uh, will reverse itself to, to, to a certain extent as a consequence of the COVID crisis. The second thing is that it is now crystal clear to everyone in the Western world that it is extremely expensive to allow China to be the factory of the world, in particular in times of war. Uh, and in this case, we battled a virus, um, not a fiscal opponent. Um, but anyhow, um, it's very, very visible 
right now that the only place on earth without supply chain disruptions is China. Uh, so of course, when uh, we uh, struggle to, um, uh, when they struggle to deliver all of the goods uh, that um, are, are uh, that are in demand across the globe, then they will start uh, by basically producing for themselves, and then they will provide the West afterwards. Right. Uh, so take take the example of freight rates. If you look at the freight rate for a container going from Shanghai to Los Angeles, then it's like forty uh, times as high as the freight rate for a container going from Los Angeles to Shanghai, which is basically the best evidence you get that uh, we have a supply chain issue, but China uh, doesn't have one. Uh, so I think that's the clearest reason why we will see a deglobalization trend, which could turn uh, some of the trends that we've seen inflation-wise over the past 20 years uh, as a consequence of it. Um, so yes, I think we've seen a level shift. We just uh, right now need to focus on the short term uh, and inflation will uh, clearly disappoint over the next 12 months. What about over the... Well, I... Totally agree with that. What about the longer term, though? Because my, the question that I'm kind of trying to get at here is, do you see us entering a sustained environment where there are negative uh, real yields? Because yeah. you know, the, 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 the backdrop that my personal opinion is, I, I agree with everything that you said. I do think we see a, a reshoring, right? At least of core manufacturing um, you know, processes you know, based on each nation. That's going to be super inflationary. And I agree. I think the, you know, over the last 30 or so years, I think that we basically, you know, whatever, co-opted the labor pool of China, right? That's led to artificially low wages and slow wage growth in the U.S. And I, I agree. I think that trend is going to reverse. I think you're going to see real sustained wage growth in the U.S. And that's going to be inflationary. Maybe it's not super fast accelerating 10% inflationary, but I do think it's going to be higher than the 2% level that we've had in the past. So, but my question is that, you know, when I look at it, like look around at the world, just like the level of debt to GDP, it seems really unfeasible that we're going to be able to normalize rates in an environment like that, especially when there might be heightened competition in between nations. And like, there's a lot of political pressure to keep rates low and growth growing and all that kind of stuff. So my conclusion, when I look at those two variables is that we're going to see an environment with high inflation and low rates and negative, negative real rates is basically the, the big macro backdrop that I'm seeing right now. Do you, do you agree yeah. with that or, or no? I, I perfectly agree. I mean, uh, negative real rates over the next two, three decades is the only politically palatable solution to yeah. the uh, debt to GDP issues that we're faced with. Uh, and those issues are uh, substantially larger than they were in December 2019. Mm -hmm. uh, so they've been accelerated like crazy throughout these past couple of years of, uh, of the pandemic. Uh, I simply cannot imagine uh, a scenario where a politician in a democracy will allow any other scenario to unfold uh, because then you will be thrown out of office immediately. Uh, so the only politically palatable solution is to keep real rates negative uh, mm. forever, basically, or at least for, for the foreseeable horizon. So how does that translate to different um, assets? So for me, I'm, I'm kind of hearing that and thinking, okay, that should be good for stocks, that should be good for commodities, that should be good for real estate, should be horrible for bonds. Uh, and then I want to get your, your views <laughs> on crypto. But is that is that generally the right framework that you're, that you're yeah, thinking about? Yeah, yeah, de definitely. Uh, I mean, obviously, you will lose purchasing power uh, being long bonds in such a scenario long term. Uh, 
so I agree with you. Uh, you could uh, make some money in uh, treasury uh, treasuries with an inflation protection, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Those bonds could perform into this scenario. But otherwise, uh, you're right that real estate is probably a, a good place to hide, uh, also due to the inflation protection. Uh, maybe crypto is a good place to hide long term uh, as a consequence of this. Uh, and then the stock market will likely perform decently well, yes. Uh, at least certain sectors will. Yeah. So I want to get your view um, on crypto. You know, I've, I've heard you kind of talk about that in the past. How, how, are you viewing the crypto space as basically, you know, I've kind of seen you lump it in with commodities a little bit. So do you kind of look primarily at Bitcoin uh, as being the value driver there? And that's kind of your store value type asset, uh, you know, for in a new digital age, millennials prefer that, you know, to gold or something like that. Do you go like kind of deep in the weeds on some of the more like DeFi uh, type things that are going on? Like what's what's your overall view on, on crypto as an asset class? I suppose? <laughs> I, I, I'm always told by my crypto friends that that I'm a boomer when I talk about Bitcoin, right? <laughs> so I, I, I've started to look at Ethereum and uh, and Solana as well. Uh, so my, my world is not broader than that in crypto space. I have to uh, admit that uh, coming from the uh, fiat system. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but I actually think that uh, there's a growing probability that this product will be institutionalized over the coming uh, five to 10 years. Mm. Um, I... Um, had questions over the past few years from institutional investors on whether I found the crypto space in general to um, protect them against inflation, for example. I had more and more questions on that. Um, And I considered that interesting um, since if we go three, four, five years back, I never received such requests. Uh, so I think we're moving towards an institutional uh, institutionalization. That was a tricky word uh, of of crypto, uh, which basically means that the um, that the potential could still be massive because uh, we don't have institutions involved a lot right now in uh, in crypto space. Uh, I think we will uh, face a, a big test in crypto space this year. If I'm right, then inflation will plummet um, because a lot of people bought into the idea that uh, crypto uh, works as an inflation hedge last year. Uh, so short term, I'm not too sure that I would increase my my uh, tactical bets in, in this sector. Uh, but otherwise, structurally, um, if it works as an inflation hedge, and I think it, it has passed the first test, then obviously you should have an exposure towards that sector. Um, and I, I would have that myself and I already have that. Thank you so much. Uh, this has given me a lot to think about. This is one of those great interviews where I had this whole list of questions that I was going to ask you, uh, and I basically <laughs> didn't get to any of them because I was just uh, asking a bunch of other ones. Um, if folks want to find out more about you and your work, or if you want to tease a little bit uh, this collab that you've got going with uh, our mutual friend Alfonso, uh, what's the best way for folks to find out more information about you? What you're up to? You can follow me on Twitter. Um, so uh, uh, I'm in there, Andreas Steno. Um, mm. That was the Danish pronunciation of it. Uh, otherwise, follow me on uh, on LinkedIn. Um, and uh, my next employer will be uh, published very soon, uh, but I cannot reveal it yet. So uh, you will have to stay tuned for that. <laughs> Excellent, Andreas. We're all, we're all looking forward to it, my friend. Uh, and seriously, I want to end this by just saying, super glad to have you back. We really missed your insight and opinions. So cheers. Thanks a lot for hosting me, Michael. Thanks. Yeah, you bet, man. Talk soon.